You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. I'm so glad that every time we get together as a church family and we open up the word and we stand and we read it together that we can be assured that these words are breathed by God. They are useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that the man of God, the person of God, can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's why God wants us to hear his word so that we can be equipped. And as we get familiar with scripture, we see that different portions of scripture have their own focus. And the book of Ephesians very much has the focus of identity. Who are we as a people of God? That is crucial to understand our relationship to God and how we're supposed to relate with other people. So when we look at Ephesians, we can say, Lord, please train us. Help us to understand who we are because of you. A phrase that I found helpful is that is in Christ, identity and intimacy are intricately linked. Those two go hand in hand. In order to know who you are, you need to know who you belong to. The God you belong to and the people you belong to. And and this is what all of Ephesians has been talking about. It's been mentioned a few times about the importance of the, the vertical relationship with God and then how that bleeds through the horizontal relationships with the people in our lives. And Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 was very much talking about that vertical relationship with God. Azar two weeks ago mentioned in verse 4 that there's these key words, but God. But God in his rich mercy because of his extravagant love for us made us alive in Christ even while we were still dead in our sins and our trespasses. God did that. God made it possible for us to have relationship with him. And now today we move on to Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, and it very much talks about how that impacts the unity that we experience with one another. And the transition point between the two verses comes in Ephesians 2, verse 9. It says, For we have been saved by grace, and this is a gift. It's not by work so that no man can boast. Boasting has no place in the life of a believer. There's no reason to boast that we're saved or in our relationships. Boasting is a relationship killer. And when we see that in our life, we have to say, Lord, something needs to be done because I'm not understanding clearly. I'm boasting, and that's not supposed to happen. So how can we be uh, preparing ourselves, training ourselves not to be people who boast, but who trust and have confidence in God? I think one of the key things is to understand that in our walk with God, God is always the one who initiates, and we are always the one who responds. It might not seem that way, because sometimes I know I've been thinking, man, you know, Lord, it's been a few days maybe since I've really spent good time in your word, and I need to do that so we can get closer, or, or maybe that's in prayer. Lord, I need to spend more time in prayer so that we can get closer together. But the reality is, if it wasn't for the grace of God, I wouldn't even have such thoughts. God wouldn't be on my radar. Every time I think about the Lord, it's because of his mercy. He initiates, we respond. That's the way it is throughout scripture. When we talk about revelation, God's general revelation, where he makes himself known through the creation he's made, that there is a God who exists, we see it, we respond. When we think about his special revelation, about the truth of who Jesus Christ is and who we can be because of that, we hear it, we respond. And that happens in every area of life. Anything of worth happens because God initiates and we respond. I know early in my faith, one of the things I struggled with was very much what the Ephesians struggled with. We heard in Revelations that the Ephesians were commended that they lived good lives in many ways, but this one thing I have against you, that you've lost your first love. 
You don't love me like you used to. And I get prompted by that question quite often. Doug, am I really your first love? Are you putting me first in everything? And, and it's hard when you have that feeling and you try to serve and you want to do everything to honor the Lord, but you don't still feel that love maybe. And God blessed me with the words from 1 John 4 verse 10, which simply says, you love because God first loved you. We love because God first loved us. And what those words did for me is just really helped me recognize that the only way that I can fall deeper in love with God is by understanding how deeply he loves me and to respond to it. Lord, help me to see your love today. Lord, I know what Christ did on the cross, but help me to see your love today. Throughout my actions, help me to see your love and help me to respond. And when I respond, Lord, that will be love. More on the growing edge right now, it's the, the part for me of saying, Lord, I want to do everything in your strength. I don't want to make plans and then ask you to bless and then do it in your strength. I want to be still and know that you are God. I want to hear your voice. Jesus said that he did everything that he heard his father tell him to do. Lord, that's the faith I want. I want to hear you, and then I want to obey you, and I want to know that I have the strength to follow you, and that will give me confidence. It won't give me boasting, but it will give me confidence to do the task that you have put in front of me. We have a great God who just wants to give, and he asks us to receive. So that's the core of our faith. So Paul, in talking with the people, as he's talking about, this is what God did for you to be in relationship with him, and now we're going to move into talking about you being united with others. You need to know people who you were before Christ. So then, remember that at one time, you were Gentiles in the flesh. Unless you are born Jewish, you are a Gentile. I'm a Gentile. I'm assuming most of you are Gentiles. And Paul's telling Gentile Christians right now, people who have come to know Christ, you need to remember where you came from. I want to spend a little bit of time helping us do that this morning. The world was created. Adam and Eve are in perfect relationship with God. They choose to sin against God, and right then, boom, there is death for all humankind. From that point on, people can live their life in the body, but there is a spiritual death between us, and there's an eternity of separation between mankind and God. And there is nothing that we can do about it. There is nothing in our own strength that we can change that reality. We were lost. God, in his grace, talks to a man named Abram. He's 75 years old. And he says to Abram, Abram, I have a plan. And that plan means that through you, I am going to bless the world. The people you bless, I will bless. The people who curse you, they will be cursed. But through you, Abram, all nations on the earth are going to be blessed. Abram in faith, follows God, because God says, Abram, follow me. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your home. I want you to leave everything you know and go to a land that I'm going to take you to. Abram isn't told anything more than that. He's just said, it's time for you to go. And Abram follows. A number of years go by, and Abram realizes he's getting close to 100, and he doesn't have a kid yet. God, do I need to help out on this? And he decides to have a, a child with his wife's slave because his wife's close to 100 years old. How's that possible? Right? So he has an heir. And after that heir is born, after Ishmael's born, God comes and speaks to Abram and says, Abram, that's not the person who I'm going to fulfill my promise through. Come outside. Take a look at the stars. You see those stars? You're going to have as many descendants as stars in the sky. And through that son, through that lineage, there is going to be salvation for the world. And then we are here in Genesis 15, verse 6. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. 
Because Abram believed, he became righteous in the sight of God. And God said, I am going to fulfill my promise to you. I am going to make you a covenant people. Everybody from your lineage is going to become part of this covenant line. And through that, I am going to save the world. See, in God, this boundary means love. Because everybody's lost, and the only way I can save you is by getting someone who's named Jesus to come and die for you, and he needs to come through a people. And this people, this people is going to be the lineage of Christ. A covenant can be conditional, or a covenant can be unconditional. The promise that the covenant that God made to Abram, that he made to David, those are unconditional promises. He said it, it will happen. The covenant that he made with Moses, which is included in this covenant family, that was a conditional promise. I do this, you do this. You don't do this, I don't do that. Okay? But so a covenant promise, though, the ones that he gave to Abraham is unconditional. There's a phrase that's just said covenant, the pursuit of God. I think that's a beautiful phrase to understand the motive behind a covenant, the pursuit of God. When I read that, the first thing I think about is my role. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and your strength. I need to love God. I need to pursue Him. But the reality, again, is that it's all about God. It's God's pursuit of us. A covenant that God made to reach out to us so that we could be saved. And that's what's so unique about Scripture and about the God who's revealed Himself in the Bible. While people of other faiths pursue their gods for a variety of reasons, Christians recognize that the only true God has been the one actively pursuing them, even when they were his enemies. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God is always the initiator. And because of that, we have no reason to boast. God said there's going to be a sign to this covenant, Abram. All your men right now, I want them to be circumcised. And from this day forward, when a baby's born after they're eight days old, I want that baby to be circumcised. That's going to be the external sign of an internal commitment that you have made to me, but more importantly, that I have made to you. Because there's going to be a blessing through your family, Abraham. So there is the circumcised and there were the uncircumcised. I don't know if you remember last week, uh, Peter Berg was here from Camp Nudemic, and he shared a story about uh, Abram when he was pleading for the city of Sodom. And uh, Abraham's on top of a, a mountain. He's looking down at this city with, with the angel of the Lord, and the angel says, this city's going to be destroyed. And I'm not sure what's going through Abram's head, but I'm thinking he's probably, he's been made aware that all the world's going to be blessed through him. So maybe he needs to be an advocate for this place as well. And, and, and he says these words, he says, Will you really, Lord, sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Is that what you would do? Lord, if there's 50 people in this city who are righteous, will you spare it? Yes, Abram, I'll spare it. What about 45? Yes, 45. What about 40? Yes. Okay, Lord, I don't want to push it. What about 30? Yes. 20? Yes. 10? Yes. The story ends by saying, when the Lord was done speaking with Abram, he left. This conversation was initiated by God. He wanted Abraham to realize how great his mercy was for people, but how wicked people were. And that's the point here. The point is that we tend to underestimate the grace of God, and we tend to overestimate the righteousness of people. God is rich in mercy. He wants to extend it to everybody. No one deserves it. But some people feel they do deserve it, and they wonder, 
well, where's God in those circumstances? Well, let's take, for example, uh, a lady who might be on the fringe of society, way away from the covenant community. She's a woman in a male-dominated society. Maybe she's given her life to prostitution. What about her, Lord? Don't you care about her? Let's go back to the book of Joshua. Do you remember what happened when they were going into Jericho and the two spies went into the city and they met a woman? They were, they were going to be caught, so they went to a prostitute's house. They met a woman named Rahab. Rahab was a woman, and I already said she was a prostitute, and she said, I will, sit, I will keep you in my house. I've heard about the God who took you out of Egypt, and that God is God. That God is majestic. There's no way that our city can defend itself against you. I will keep you safe, but will you keep my family safe? And they said, yes, we will. We'll do that. You put this red ribbon around the door, and when we come and invade the city, everybody inside your house will be saved. Very similar to what happened in the Exodus when people put blood on the doorpost and said, the angel of death will pass. Rahab could be saved. So she let those men out, and she, she was, became a believer. We wouldn't say in Christ, but she became part of that covenant community. Her heart was directed towards the God of Israel. But what we need to know that is in order to be saved, a person must be part of God's covenant community. Salvation never happens isolated. You don't just say, Lord, I want you as my Savior, and now I'm good to go. Because that doesn't work with the Lord. If you're going to be with God, you're also with his people. And throughout the Old Testament, the people who are, the Gentiles who are on the outer fringes, there's examples of people who said, I, I recognize this God. I'm in fear of this God because I, of what I see him doing for his chosen people. Obviously, he's at work there. And I choose to give my life to that God, to worship that God. But in order for them to become part of the people, males had to be circumcised. I'm not sure what the women had to do to become part of the Jewish the, the covenant, but there had to be an external act to identify with the Jewish people to become part of the covenant. So now we hear these words, so then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. This is who we are, guys. We're these people. Before we met Christ, we're these people on the outside. We weren't part of the covenant. We're all on our own. There's no salvation for us. And, and Ephesians tells us that we have no Messiah. There's been no hope for us. No one's ever told us that there's a God who loves us and cares for us and who wants to bring salvation to us. No Messiah. We're not citizens of Israel. We don't have the blessings of God. We don't have God's favor shining upon us. We're foreigners to the covenant of the promise. We have never been told what God promises about how God wants to bless and have eternity with us. We have no hope. There is no hope. It's utter darkness. You're alone. You're despondent. There's no hope for you in an eternal perspective. And you're without God. This is who you are before you met Christ, Gentile believers. And again, I believe for most of us in the room, that would be us. If we were at this time, that would be who, God is, who Paul is talking to. Gentile believers, remember where you came from. Because when you remember this, you know that you have no reason to boast. It's all about what God has done. Now we hear these two good words, but now. They very much parallel the words, but God, in Ephesians 2 verse 4. But now Christ has a plan. Christ came to do something so that we could be out of that state. It's worth noting that the spiritual plight of the Gentiles was not caused by God, but by their own willful sin. I just want to strive that point home. We don't have a vengeful God who just threw people out. The Bible tells us 
that God created everything. The Bible tells us that people knew that there was one God and that people chose to go a different way. We don't like what we hear. We're going to make our own gods. We're going to go a different direction. God has always made himself known. Romans tells us that Gentiles don't have an excuse for not believing because God has made it possible for everybody to know that he exists. There's no excuse. So what did God do? God knew that that covenant needed to be fulfilled. And he knew that it needed to be fulfilled with a new covenant. Already in the book of Jeremiah, we get the promise of a better covenant. And it's the only Old Testament occurrence of a covenant that's expressed as being qualitatively new. It's dynamically different, not in its content, but in how it's going to be lived out. The content is the same. Before the content was written on tablets of stone, now God says, I'm going to write it on your hearts. I am going to forgive you, and you are going to have fellowship with me, and everybody will know who I am, because when this covenant is fulfilled, it will be ingrained in your heart. Before you heard it, you read it, and you had to try to live it, now I am going to be the one who enables you to fulfill it, to live it out, because of the Holy Spirit I will give you, because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But now, this is Ephesians 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. Gentile believers, we only have a relationship with God because of what Christ did for us. Because he was willing to shed his blood for us. And because of that, the Bible says the law was fulfilled. There is the end of the external commands of the law. What matters now are the internal things, the end of the law. So you can imagine that the people who heard this, well, first of all, again, we have two different groups of people still, right? We have the circumcised people up till the time of Christ who have been part of God's covenant community. They've been circumcised. That's been their, their feature as a people. That's been one of their boundaries. And then we have the uncircumcised. And so... And this is something was, that was ordained by God. That was his plan so that Jesus could be brought. There needed to be a people who were set apart that Jesus could be born through. But now, <clears throat> talking about uh, circumcision, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. These external acts don't matter anymore. What God says is, I want to know that your heart is directed towards me that your sight is Christ. Think about God and everything and he will direct your paths. Surrender to God, allow him to forgive your sins and allow his Holy Spirit to dwell in you. That's what's the sign of the new covenant, right? That is what we needs to be done. So you can imagine that there could be some confusion at this time because there's the Gentile believers that would be one of these guys and there's the believers who are outside of faith who as adults made an act to become part of the circumcised family or the covenant family and then there's the people who are always brought up in it. And so these people can say, well, how can that be that that person doesn't have to do anything that we did before? How is it that you didn't have to do what I needed to do to be part of that group? That's not right. And there could be hostility, misunderstanding about what, where people are in their relationship with God. So the second thing Ephesians tells us is that Jesus came. Why? So there would be no hostility between them. Hostility needed to be dealt with. In Christ, this is what he did. He said that boundary no longer exists. All that matters is that your eyes are on Christ and that you've surrendered to him, that he is your Lord and your Savior. <clears throat> Galatians 3.28 tells us, There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Christ came to take two groups that were opposed to one another 
and in union in Christ for those who put their eyes on Christ to take those two groups and to make them one and to bring unity. Unfortunately, while the old covenant boundaries of God were removed, the barriers created by his children often still remain. So there were boundaries throughout the history of the Old Testament. There were boundaries that God put in place, but people put up more barriers. And so God takes away the boundaries, but there's still all these man-made things that you need to jump through in order to get into a relationship with Christ. That was part of the problem of the early church. That would be part of the problem that we would have faced. And one of the reasons that we celebrate communion is that when we come to the communion table, we realize that in Christ we are unified. That there are no divisions between us anymore. Male or female, Greek, Greek or slave, or it, there's, there's no divisions. God has brought us unity. From two men, he's made one. He's done that so that he has a brand new people. He didn't just add us to the mix. He didn't just add Gentiles. He didn't, he didn't Christianize Jews, and he didn't Judaize Gentiles. It didn't sound quite right. But you know what I'm saying? He made a new people, and that new people brought peace. And that peace, Ephesians tells us, was important so that he could represent both of us together as one to Christ to be reconciled, and in that reconciliation, make sure that there was the end of hostility. It's a beautiful thing that Christ has done for us. This is just more of a personal devotional thought. Uh, while we tend to approach reconciliation as a way to achieve unity, Christ has given us unity in order for us to be reconciled. What I mean by that is sometimes when I see issues in the church that people are fighting about things, we say we need to be reconciled so that we can be unified together. And what God tells us is, you're already unified, so use that unity to work towards reconciliation. That's a game changer for me in my thought life. You're already unified, so now work towards reconciliation. Because that is who we are in Christ. We're unified. We're believers who love one another. Ephesians 2 verse 17 says, When the Messiah came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to those who are far away and peace to those who are near. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that God came and he spoke to this person who was so far out of the covenant community that they needed to be told that there's peace for you to have in Christ. But he also had to come and talk to the people who had grown up in a covenant uh, culture and say, there, you need to hear the word of peace too because not all of you get it. You're all in the culture, but you don't all understand who Christ is. And if you don't understand who Christ is, you're going to miss the covenant promise. And that's where other division happened because people who are always in this bubble of the chosen people all of a sudden thought, well, I thought that was enough. And only some people kept their eyes on Christ. And other people said, no, we're just going to stick with what the Old Testament says. We don't believe anything else has happened. The parallel for us today is that you could be raised in a church culture, a Christian culture. You could serve, you could know all the lingo, you could have Bible verses, listen to Christian radio. It means absolutely nothing if you don't have your eyes on Christ. Because Christ is the only one who brings salvation, who gives us strength. He is the deciding factor of a, of a relationship with God. So we always need to be examining, Lord, are you really my first love? Lord, help me to keep my eyes on you and then to live in the truth that God has given us. The people of the covenant were, <clears throat> were not necessarily saved, but salvation came through them. So throughout the Old Testament, there's these people. Not every person in that chosen group spent eternity with God. 
The same can be true on this side of the gospel, that Christ has come and revealed salvation. Now there's the church. And the gospel can be shared through the church, but it doesn't mean everybody who goes to church is saved. Only those who have their eyes on Christ and who have given themselves to Christ. That's hugely important for us to know. Ephesians 2 verse 18 talks about the central place of the Trinity in our salvation. For through Christ, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Please note that salvation is extremely relational. This is all about having access to God. It's all about being in relationship. And God as a Trinitarian entity is all about relationship. God, it was not all about, but that's a key part of his existence. God is one. That's what we're told. Uh, But then there's still the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit that are separate. They're not the same, but they're one. This is where we have to have faith. This is what the Bible tells us is true, so we believe it. What I can tell you from this for sure is that God has perfect love in himself. He glorifies himself. There's no boasting in his life with, between the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They exist to glorify one another. They have a perfect love relationship. They did not <clears throat> need to create anything because they needed something. They created us because of their love. And they wanted to invite us into having that love for eternity with them through Jesus Christ. So now we get into the last few verses of Ephesians 2. Well, what does the church look like for those who give their life to Christ? Well, you are citizens with the saints. You have a place where you belong. You now can claim the promises of God. You're a citizen with the saints. You're members of God's household. If you wanted a place to belong, you have it. God is your father and his children are your brothers and sisters. You have a place to belong. You're a living building that Christ is the cornerstone of. That means he's the one who determines everything else. He determines the foundation, the apostles and the prophets. He determines the walls. Everything is dependent on Christ. And he's building a living building until the day he comes again. He's building a living building that we can be a part of in which the Holy Spirit will dwell. And he says, you are a holy sanctuary. Scripture tells us that each of us who's given our life to Christ has a Holy Spirit in us. We are a temple of God in that way. But this isn't talking about that. This is talking about what God, something God has been doing throughout the history of humankind and will be completed when Christ comes again. When he's got the whole amount of people that he said are going to enter into salvation, that group will be a holy sanctuary. And in the midst of them, Christ will dwell. And the last part of Ephesians says, this is God's glorious mystery. That you're being built together for this dwelling place of the Spirit And God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery. The mystery is, how is it that through having a a boundary, having these circumcised believers, how is it that you could bring salvation to everyone? How could you bring two groups that were diametrically opposed to one another, that hated one another? How can you bring people together and make one? He wanted the Gentiles to know, look what Christ has done to make it possible for you to be saved. And that started way, way back with Abraham. And you've been called uncircumcised all these years, but that doesn't matter anymore. What matters is that you're in a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, and that includes your brothers and sisters. As we approach communion today, that's what we need to remember. Christ shed his blood so that we could be a unified people that would experience peace with one another, and that would live a life of reconciliation between God and with the people around us. That's the value 
one of the main values of taking this time together is to say we are bonded in Christ together. Because of Christ, we are one. And so today, as we take time to celebrate communion, know that this table is open to anybody who makes that declaration that Christ is my Lord and my Savior, and I desire to live for him by the strength and the enablement of his Holy Spirit. We partake in the bread which helps us remember Christ's flesh, which gave the death blow to hostility, and remember the blood of Christ by drinking juice together, which helps us to remember the new covenant. And uh, at this time, Raj, I'm going to ask you to, to pray for the bread.